Small businesses are the backbone of America, and they help keep the spirit of Texas alive. But did you know as many as 50% will close their doors forever after just five years? Well, we're here to change that. This is The Beef. We know how tough it is to be an entrepreneur today. We're giving small business owners a platform to share their story. You'll hear it all. The highs and the lows. The good and the bad. But most importantly, you'll learn. Welcome to The Beef. The Beef. Yeah, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Kelly, aka John the Marketer on Instagram. Joining me in the studio today, I've got Will Patterson with Rehab Garage here in Tomball, Texas. Will, welcome to the show, man. What's up, man? I'm so glad to have you. It's a really cool spot you have over there. I love the location. I love the work that y'all do. I've been on the grounds a couple of times just looking at some Jeep parts and stuff like that that y'all were trying to like wholesale out of oh, there yeah. just to get rid of clearance and it's a really cool place. So I'm excited to kind of get into that and learn what y'all do over there. And hopefully out of that, some of our listeners will want to get some work done and come meet up with you as well. Yeah. We're kind of the hidden gym. Yeah. Most people don't even know we're here. So. It's, it is such a cool spot. Mm. And I, I know we're going to jump into that icebreaker question though. We okay. always start with an icebreaker question on our show. Today's question is, who is the most famous celebrity that you know? Probably a uh, knee jerk reaction, probably Richard Rollins. Yeah. With, yeah, with Fast sure. and Loud and Gas Monkey Garage. It's appropriate. I filmed with them on Fast and Loud a couple times. We did some interaction before, after, and during, that kind of thing. I dealt with his partner a few times afterwards, and I met some other people here and there, but that's probably the most known name yeah. that I've dealt with. Yeah. I know we were talking earlier about Outlaw Dave. That's a cool one for me because being a Houston local, born and raised right here, I don't know if you remember Jefferson Davis Hospital of back course. in the day. That's of where course. I was born, man. So I'm H Town no through and through. Yeah. Yeah. I was one of the last babies born there. And then I actually went oh, wow. when they demolished it and watched it get torn down. So it was kind of a little, you know, wow. Like a full circle type thing there. Yeah. But Outlaw is kind of like the local celebrity. You know, he really everybody is. knows him for 30 years. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, he's got such a career. It's oh, yeah. amazing. Even so. being on AM show now, everybody still knows who Outlaw Dave is. So. Right. For me, I don't really know a whole lot of celebrities. I think the coolest one I've met was Uncle Cracker. Oh, yeah. If you listen to his music. Yeah. But, man, he was just somebody that I used to sing and stuff when I was a kid. And he was somebody's music that I would always sing because I, I just loved everything he had. And I've been to probably two or three concerts of his in the Houston area now. Right. We were at Mardi Gras. I think I told this story on air. We were at Mardi Gras and my mom, somehow, man, she could just sense a celebrity where they were, what they were doing. She found him. We went to this little... Place. I don't even remember what the name of it was, but it's this little on the strand, little restaurant, two story. And he was upstairs and we literally just joined him for dinner. That's cool. And just sat there and drank and ate and right. talked to Uncle Cracker and his whole band. You know what's funny to me about celebrities that I've ran to? I've met you know all kinds of people, but long-term interactions is different. But even the ones I just meet, 99.9% of the time, when you've just talked to them normal, they're just a normal person. Exactly. They're nothing special. And most of them don't want to be treated with some kind of special rank. There's a few of them that have that elitist idea, but sure. most of them are just normal old people that came from nowhere that did something that worked. And that's how it kind of goes. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say lucky to them because most of them have worked for it, but how cool to have something, you know, even like your garage, if you reach some type of stardom or celebrity status because of it, it's like, how cool that something you love turns right. into something that everyone loves so much that you gain a following from. Correct. It, that they're willing to actually follow you and buy into your brand. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the whole goal of marketing. You know? Right. Absolutely. I enjoy talking about that. I think this might have even actually been a repeat question, but 
we had such a cool discussion before the show happened, of course, that I just wanted to kind of rehash over that because it's always cool when you have those celebrity connections. Yeah, and, and those people come to you. you know, a, lot, a lot of people that I know are not people I went and sought out. They actually came to me for different reasons. So, you know, Outlaw Dave is kind of the same scenario. Me and him have known each other for a long, long time. But then but the initial connection between me and Outlaw was Outlaw came to me for something. And I just happened to be the person that fulfilled what he needed. Yeah. And that turned into, you know, a whole bunch of other things. So it's interesting because if you're in a business or you have a business, it isn't so much about trying to pursue celebrities as clients. It's about you doing something that they recognize on a normal person level. And they say, you know what, for me, you know, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, Yep. you know, he loves cars. And he contacted me a few years ago about building a car because he found us on social media. And it wasn't because he was a celebrity and wanted to boast his celebrity status to me. It was because he needed something I provided. Right. And that was cool because he saw the passion of what we do and what I do and recognized that on a human level, not on a celebrity level. Yeah. It's not cool. something, it's not a special favor. It's not right. a, I have cash to throw around. It was just, you're doing it so right, right. that I want to go to you. You see some business owners that advertise on social media or other places and they have this weird idea that they need to post or portray that they're nothing but, you know, I know all these celebrities and I right. do all this stuff and come to find out, usually those people don't know hardly anybody. It is paid to get into a suite at the Astros game yep. and hang out with somebody and take a picture and put on Instagram and say, oh, you know, this is my kind of clientele. When in fact, most of it's all BS, you know? Yeah. So there's a real side to what you do and there's a fake side. And usually, you know, the fake it till you make it real only goes so far. Absolutely. And then you got to be real. So. Yeah. It's cool to have that like celebrity status clientele. Sure. But at the same time, be real with who you are, you know? And at the same time, they don't, sometimes the celebrities don't want anybody to know that they're your client. Right. You know, they're like, don't tell anybody that I'm here. I don't, don't want yeah. to be annoyed by somebody. I get that. Totally get that. The first time that an episode aired on Fast and Loud that I was on, it, obviously they filmed it before and then they aired it later, right? And the night it aired, my phone got so many hits on Facebook, it shut my phone off. <laughs> I got 1.1 million hits God. in 48 hours. And it was crazy because most of them were people that I knew from the past, like grade school. And junior high that I haven't seen for yeah a long time. I'm old, dude. For no, a we, long time, we know time. each other, bro. Yeah, dude. We're I remember yeah, exactly yeah. right. And then they, then they're like, oh, you know, hey, now you're a celebrity. Want to be friends again? But most of them, truth be known, the point was is that it's crazy how much instant gratification, for lack of a better word, you all of a sudden get from being exposed like that. And a lot of those celebrities don't want people to know. I don't need people in my business. You know, it, the guy says I don't need people in my business knowing what I'm doing with you. So. Please keep it on download. Absolutely. Which you absolutely respect. They get blown up every day. Yeah. I got blown up one day and was shocked. They get yeah. blown up every day. So Yeah. Do you remember the studio behind the filming for Fast and Loud? Was it Pilgrim? It was Pilgrim, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I dealt with them. So I've got a media company, 660 Films. Right. And we do, I mean, along the same lines, the no prep drag racing scene. Right. We've been on some Street Outlaws tapings. Actually, the one that they taped for Street Outlaws New Orleans in Houston mm -hmm. was taped in Waller. My cousin found the road for them. Oh, nice. That they shut down. So I had my fire buddies out there. I had my EMS agency I was managing at the time doing the safety standby. So my little claim to fame, if you watch Street Outlaws New Orleans, the intro, the ambulance doors, it was Flacco's truck, but I don't remember who was driving. It was another driver because Flacco couldn't drive. And then he wrecked the truck, flipped it, you know, probably right. 140, 160 miles an hour. Bad wreck, but he was okay, just busted up, bruised. They loaded him in the ambulance, and then they taped me shutting the ambulance doors. And I'm the only guy out there. Out. How funny. I had DJed a wedding that night. Right. And then rushed to get there for the taping. And so I'm in a button-up shirt, cowboy oh. hat, boots, the whole nine yards. 
when my crew had to take care of them, I ran right. down there to assist them and make sure everything was kosher. So you just see me closing the back doors and I'm like, hey, if you watch the intro and there then you I slow am. it down right there, like a minute and 36. <laughs> right. But it was really cool, you know, just to be a part of that. Sure. We've been to a few tapings. The one they did at NRG Stadium, we were there for that one. My ambulance right. company did stand by again. And then, of course, we got to film on the side along with Pilgrim Studios. And it was actually sure. a pretty, for a company that's capturing media for a living, the fact that they allowed us, we're small, we got 37,000 followers or something like that on Facebook, right. not huge. But they allowed us to be out there. Of course, we had to sign our NDA. Oh, yeah. We couldn't release things until they told us we could. But it was just a really cool feeling to be a part of that. Yeah, they were always cool when we filmed. When I filmed with Fast and Loud, and then I actually filmed a couple of pilots with Discovery. And Pilgrim was part of one of those pilot developments. Gotcha. And they were always really, really easy to work with and super easy, laid back going guys. They were easy to talk to. You know, I filmed with another company and they were extremely hard to talk with. And the attitude was very not laid back and relaxed. It was very hard to work in that environment. So Pilgrim guys have always been good. It was a lot of fun, man. I guess that's my other little celebrity meetings. I mean, of course, I got to meet most of the Street Outlaws guys. Right, right. From Miami and from New Orleans. I kind of fell off as a fan when they went to Memphis. I'm not right. going to lie. But I like how real most of it is too. You know, of course. Most of it, right. They like to poke and prod and get some of the arguments pumped sure. up. And then when the argument's done, it wasn't necessarily a real argument. But right. all the racing, man, that's what a lot of fans don't realize is the racing is real. Oh, like, yeah. They're you can't really fake putting, that part. Yeah, they're putting that shit on the line. Mm -hmm. And when they lose, they're upset. Like, this is not a joke. You know, the interesting thing about that is, is that that show's success was because the racing was real. Yeah. It wasn't about the arguments that were poked and prod. You know, that's one thing I didn't like about production when I was in it was that they always wanted to kind of create drama to make the show better. Yeah. And the good thing about Street Outlaws is that the racing itself made the show good. Absolutely. They didn't need anything else. When I would watch the actual show, I'm fast forwarding through the parts where Correct. they're arguing and right. pushing each other and stuff. Because it's like, I don't care about that. No, I want to see, see who race. wins the race. That's right. I want to know who wins. And then right. I want to see the behind the scenes stuff of this is what I've got. This is what's under the hood. This is, right. you know, my power adder. This is like, I want to know the mm -hmm. details of what they're doing. Right. This is what I had to do to get there. This is what they're doing. Oh, it broke. Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dude, That's yeah. what made that show good. I agree. We were talking to a couple of racers about trying to create something even more real right. than Pilgrim. And that's what we were looking for funding. We never found it for a pilot episode yeah. where you just kind of follow the racers mm -hmm. and tell their individual stories of getting up to race day. And then, of course, we filmed the races. But the whole point was to tell the behind the scenes stuff that you don't see with Street Outlaws. There should be a show about dirt track racing. Yeah. 100%. I think Tony Stewart tried to do something similar to this. I don't think he had the time to do it. I think he was so tired of everything else he was doing. Yeah. There should be a show of like Street Outlaws about the local dirt track circuit. It's such a big deal. And then there's some stories I'm telling on myself a little bit here. I, I come from the dirt track world a long time ago. Okay. And there's some guys in the dirt track world that have been doing it for a long, long time that are phenomenal race car drivers that never had the funding to do anything else. Yeah. They never could go any bigger than that. But man, they're super, super good at what they do. And they're very storied crazy path people that just be fun to learn about and watch yep. and then watching those guys race through a whole season and it's and a different dirt, story when you're on dirt dirt, versus dirt, dirt tracks about who can survive not who's the fastest yep at 100 percent. it don't matter if you can survive you'll win and most of those guys spend their whole life savings just to make that one trophy or that. that's the thing like it starts out for a lot of the drag racer guys especially no prep i mean i, I don't yeah. know how much people know about it but of course, it starts out as like the poor man's racing. That's you right. You know, where you're not in HRA. You don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars tied up into this. Of course, it's kind of getting there now. But dirt track is even more 
poor man's racing where Man. these guys go and work a blue collar job eight to five that's right they get off they crack open a beer and they work on their car till midnight one o'clock in the morning that's right go back and to work at 5 30 they right. go to bed that's wake right. up and go back to work at 5 30 yeah and then saturday morning they're loading up and they're racing mm-hmm. all right. day and they spend the whole weekend doing that yep. and then come back sunday monday tuesday to rebuild hoping then, to win that for our first place that's right exactly just enough to pay for it that's it so you're right man that'd be a heck of a story i like anything with an engine i'm just smart enough to get myself in trouble so i don't work on my own stuff because i know better right but I know enough that I'm interested, sure. you know, when you start talking the specs and all that, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm following you. You know, right. I speak a little bit of your language. It's just interesting to hear the backstories on that stuff and then see what they're working. I mean, God, a no prep drag race where you've got three, 4,000 horsepower into the hood and yeah. you're on pavement. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. That's a whole different animal. Yep. But you know, it's interesting because you're talking about what I do, cars, right? Oh yeah. I've been in so many different aspects of cars in general that- the story always would be the same. It's always about somebody that loves something about that car or something to do with that car or yep. something, you know, because of that car. And that's really why that I own the shop that I own is for that specific reason. It's not anything complicated. It's because something about that car is important to somebody. Yeah. And that's really what it's about. And whether it's dirt track racing or, or street racing or, or it's a 1956 poor 356 somebody's put away in storage. It's always comes back to the same thing as that car was important to somebody for some reason. So I'm with you. Anything yeah. having to do with four wheels and an engine and not always four wheels. Oh, yeah. I used <laughs> is, to ride. It's cool, you know. Yeah, I started riding uh, Harleys when I was 13. Yeah. I started on dirt bikes at 11. And then my dad was like, well, you know how to drive a dirt bike. I need something from the house. We were at the bar. Right. He's like, take the bike. I'm 13 years old. I was like, uh, that's going to be a no. Right. He's like, no, nah, take the bike. Okay. So I hop on. The funny thing is, is you went to a motorcycle. Yeah. I went to an airplane. Oh. I'm a pilot hey. as well. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's I'm a, awesome. I'm a huge aeronautics fan and big fan of the old airplanes and stuff. So, I went straight, in my mind, I went straight to a three-wheel tripod airplane. So, next time, dragger, fly, so. <laughs> next time you fly, you got my cell phone number now. Yeah. I'm way too poor. I'm just a fireman. Yeah. You know, I work hey. Firefighter full-time and then I work here part-time, which, you know, is basically full-time and a half. Sure. And I love anything aviation. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's the old stuff, the new stuff, huge fan of it. Just, I can't afford it If yet. it's flying, I'm in, dude. I'm just telling you. If yeah. it's flying, I'm in. I've owned several planes in my life, and I'm actually playing list right now because I'm looking to buy a six-seater plane. I get tired of my friends having to draw straws to go on trips with me. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, when you have a plane, everyone wants to go on a trip Everybody with you. wants to go, That's man. Weird. Because look at it. Look, I had a, my, my last plane was a 1959 Bonanza K-35 V-tail. Okay. Any pilot out there would know that a V-tail is what they call a doctor killer because they're super efficient and super quick. But you can push the plane faster than it's supposed to go. Mm. And a lot of guys back in the 70s and 60s and 70s were killing themselves. And they were called a doctor killer because they were popular among doctors that would fly from place to place. Gotcha. But that plane is a four-seater. So I could leave out here at Hooks and be in Destin in an hour and 10 minutes. God. And it was great. I could fly from here. I could leave my house. I'll leave my office. Be at the airport. Get in the airplane. Land at San Antonio and be on the Riverwalk and having dinner an hour and a half. Wow. That's from leaving my office to having dinner. You can't do that driving. You know, I'd be back that night before it's too late to go back to work. So everybody wanted to go. Everybody wanted to go. Yep. Yeah. And everybody and their wife wanted to go. Everybody and their you know boyfriend wanted to go. So yeah. I'm all like, okay, well, I can't charge you because it's illegal if you're a private pilot. You can't charge to fly somebody. So who's buying the next dinner? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's pretty much what <laughs> it was. Who's buying the next dinner plus <laughs> yeah. $300? Yeah, right. I, I, yeah. And you can't <laughs> even do that. You, know, you can't accept money for anything. So yeah. only thing a passenger can do as a private pilot is they can pitch in for fuel. It came down to... So many people want to go do stuff with me. And there's, I have a lot of friends that I'd like to take someplace. Well, you can only take two people at a time. You're right. bringing your significant other. So 
I got to get a six-seater. That's cool. What a problem to have. Though. Yeah, right. You know, it's, t- it's cool. I just got to find you a plane that we can rent so you can take me to Vegas when we plan oh, that man. trip in October. No, my next plane will get us to Vegas. Don't worry. <laughs> it's going to get us to Vegas. Yeah, that's, that's, that was kind of my one of my prerequisites is it has to be able to go that far on one refuel before I get there and I'm good. Nice. I don't care if it took me six hours to get to Vegas. If I fly my own plane to Vegas, you've done something. A lot of what I've seen, because I watch a lot of TikTok and pilots that I see on there, that's exactly what they say is like, they're not worried about that I can get to Destin in an hour and a half. You know, it's like, hey, if that trip takes me six hours, it's about the flight there. Yeah. It's stopping at these airports and then right. seeing the little immediate area and, the and then view. making that trip. Oh, my yeah. God. And look, and, and no matter what, you're going to be faster than driving, no matter what. Right. The key is, is that you can get there in a plane that gets you there in three hours and play four million. You can get a plane that gets you there in six hours and play 250000 Yeah. That's really the big difference, right? Absolutely. So I don't mind spending an extra couple hours in the air, which I like flying anyway. So why would yep. you be mad to save me $3.5 million? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's my bucket list is to get my pilot's license. Oh, yeah. One, one day. When well, I have time and money. When you get ready, I'll tell you how to do it the easiest way and the cheapest way. There you go. And get the same result. So That works for me. Well, I mean, I know we've kind of hopped into it already, and, and I think all this stuff is good for a backstory. So just tell us about you and where you came from and how you got into entrepreneurship. I was born in, and raised most of my younger years in North Texas in the Panhandle, around Pampa and Amarillo, that area. Okay, yeah. My sister lived in Miami. Okay, yeah. I was actually born in Canadian and raised in Wheeler. Okay. So not very far away. That's awesome. My parents moved to, when I was really young, my parents moved to Missouri. Long story short, I ended up as a foster kid for all of my teenage years. I went from that to graduating high school early to immediately going to the military. My first day in boot camp was January 1st. In Fort Linderwood, Missouri, which wow. everybody that's ex-military knows that's called Fort Lost in the Woods for a reason. <laughs> and it was January 1st. So I spent eight weeks at boot camp and eight feet of snow, which was horrible. I don't like the cold. Never have liked the cold. And that was the worst boot camp in history. Mm. So did all that. I was in there for a few years. And then when I got out, I've never really had a sense of working for other people. My first company I ever started, I was actually 12 years old. I lived in an older neighborhood. We had a bunch of houses that were early Victorian style homes that all the sidewalks were hand-laid brick sidewalks. And I realized one summer that our sidewalk, our own sidewalk, all the grass had gone through the bricks. So I tore up my own sidewalk, relayed all the bricks and put the dirt in. Well, then I realized that everybody else had the same sidewalk and they all had the same problem. So the summer of my 12-year-old year, I did like 50 sidewalks that summer. There you go. And I had my own little card. It was the dumbest name ever. It was called the Undercover Undercoverers, which made no <laughs> sense whatsoever, right? But it had a name, right? Hey, and I did, side, I did sidewalks for a whole summer and, and I raised enough money. To buy my first car, which had to be the first car I ever built. I bought a 1986 Ford LX four-cylinder Mustang for 500 bucks from a lady down the street. I was so excited when I went and paid her. Yeah. Right? My mom, obviously, I was too young to drive. So, my mom was not going to let me you know, <laughs> do anything but go with me and did not want me to have the car. But because it was supposedly didn't run and drive, she agreed. So, I had this little run-down little garage. We started the car, bringing it home. It blew up in the engine within the two blocks to get home. Of course. So, I spent for however long rebuilding this car with no knowledge, none. So I had a parts store down the street that was ran by an old man back when, you know, local parts stores were the guy that had been there for 50 years. You yep. Know? Not the last high school kid that graduated, but this guy run this place forever. I would take a part down there and he would bring out the Chilton handbook and give me the Chilton book that matched the part. Give me the part. Tell me how to do it. I'd go home and do that. I'd come back and ask more questions. And I yep. spent a long time doing that. I learned the basics of the idea of what I was trying to do, not the car much, so much about the process. And that's kind of where that started. Well, it never really turned into a business for me for a long time. It was a hobby. So after I got out of the military, back to kind of where I was, I went to work for myself doing a lot of construction. I used to build new houses. I used to have a large loss insurance restoration company where we did like condos, apartments during hurricanes. Did a lot of construction stuff for a long time. And I did really well at it. 
I built houses in South Texas and Kerrville. I built houses in College Station, Bryan College Station for a long time. I'm kind of summarizing here a lot of stuff, but <laughs> it all kind of led to me selling that company out. And then I had another company that, that was open for a while. We did nutrition supplies and manufacturing. It was a co-parenting kind of company. And then when I sold that company, um, I'd been doing cars as a hobby, right? For years, I'd been building my own cars. I had 70 Kudas and all kinds of stuff, right? Man. And the car that got away, right? There's yep. always, there's always, I have like 40 of those. Oh, of course. And I sold all these other companies and I was sitting around going, you know what I'm going to do now? I need to do something different. Well, funny story. I'm sitting on my couch on a Monday night, I believe. And I was watching one of the first episodes of Fast and Loud. And I immediately got irritated about it. And my significant other at the time asked me why I was so upset. And I said, you know what? It, it irritates me that you watch these car shows. They convince people who don't know better yeah. that you can build a car in three weeks for 30 grand. Yep. And it's not possible. You can't truly build a car for 30 grand in three weeks. So I said, you know what? I'm at the point now where I can do something about it. And I want to do something where people's expectations are real. They're realistic. That they're told up front that this is the real situation. Mm -hmm. This is what the real cost could be. And your car may or may not be worth doing. You know, you may bring me a car. I'm going to tell you, don't waste your money. This is right. a waste of your time. You know, do something different. So I took what was supposed to be a hobby that everybody, you know, I had friends of mine bring me cars for years. They would say, hey, I need you to work on my car. So-and-so screwed my car up. I need you to fix it, blah, blah, blah. This is, and it was a hobby. That's all I was. Well, boy, did I make a mistake. I decided, you know what, I'm going to open a shop. I'm going to do this a different way. I rent, rent a little place on the corner of Cypress Wood and Kirkendall and took over a guy's lease. It was basically a failed muffler shop. And kind of bought out of his old equipment and took off from there. And I kept the one guy that was left to his shop as a tech. And it is blown from there. That was in 2015. So seven years ago, almost eight years ago, the same guy that I hired that day that kept is still with me. He's one of the best car builders you'll ever meet in your life. And it's grown to 30-some thousand feet. I'm adding 32,000 more feet right now to my property. It's already massive, too. Oh, it's uh, not I've walked, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fixing that double in size. I've walked I'm, the shop before, just coming in there, like I said, for other miscellaneous things. And I mean, it's, it's, and it's immaculate, too. That's the crazy part. Is it's yeah, not like a dirty, dingy shop. Yeah, we want our shop to be different than everybody else, right? Yeah. And one of the biggest things people know us about a shop is most of them are just a mess. Yep. And you can't find nothing. You can't organize nothing. Because of my military background and, and because of I'm just kind of that way, I'd like to know where things are. You know, at my home, I like yes. to know where things are. And I'm not crazy OCD about it, but if I want to find the vacuum cleaner to vacuum my floor, I want to know where the vacuum is. Yeah. You know, it's that simple and simple rules. And the hardest part about that is, it's not you doing it. It's finding somebody else that will do it with you. It's finding people that, that will work and kind of work in the same parameters in which you wish things could happen. Because mm -hmm. when people walk into my shop, I want them to say the exact thing you just said. Yeah. Your shop is immaculate. When I think my shop is a mess. Of course. You know, when I yeah. walk in, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many things out of, out of place. Well, and, and you walk in, you're like, holy crap, this place is great. You yeah. Know? And don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not saying that you can eat off the floor. It's a mechanic shop. Sure. But what I'm saying is for a mechanic shop. Right. That's the closest to sterile you'll find. And we try to be. Every day we try to improve that scenario and implement things that are automatic that help us, that don't require human involvement over time. You know, some things that just cleaner ways of doing things are cleaner supplies that aren't so mess driven or chaos driven. So it's a hard thing to manage, but- when you get the right people all doing it together, many hands make light work. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, the shop stays clean as a general rule because everybody's putting in their part. And the way that my people work for me, it kind of requires them to anyway because they're contractors kind of like NFL football players. So I don't treat my people like normal employees, right? These guys are skilled specialists. They're not yep. you know, your average everyday guy just for a job. These guys come with $40,000, $50,000 of hand tools on their own. Yeah. One of my guys has got two toolboxes that are worth seventy grand total, just his box. So these guys are not normal people, right? And when you bring people like that together, you have 
positive and negatives. One of them is personality. You mm-hmm. got to find guys that can work in the same mentality together and work along each other. Because in that world, ego is kind of part of the driving force. <laughs> yep. And if they start having ego problems, then you have morale problems across the shop. But if you can get them to all work together to a common cause and accomplish that, then they got it made. These guys and gals are all on contract per year like an NFL player. They have a required production rate to hit in order to keep their contract. And their contract has and bonuses and has penalties. So if they sign a quarterback for the New England Patriots, he gets this much money for a contract, but he has to perform these things. And if he doesn't get right. these things, he doesn't keep his job. And if he doesn't need these things, he gets the bonus. It's the same with my people. And they love it because it puts some of the weight back on them. And then their quality of work stays higher. Quality is a big, a big requirement for their contract. So if you do bad work and your work keeps coming back for warranty, you don't keep your contract. And it's null and void that moment. There's no reprieve time or anything. You either do your job or don't. Right. And I like to keep it simple, but keeps them self-motivated, which is good. It's got to be great to know. I mean, that is a, you see a direct reflection of your work. If right. I do high quality work, I get a bonus. Boom. Correct. That's it. Like I'm actually appreciated. There is no question about it because you know it holds you to the fire. It does. But you know what's funny is I never hear that comment from these people. It's never about the money. What gets my guys is when they build a car and the client shows up to pick it up and they start yeah. crying. And we've got videotape. We used to produce our own little show on Facebook called Benny Wrenches that we were eventually going to go back to doing. And in one of those episodes, we built an FJ, the Toyota FJ for a lady and completely customized it for her. And we deliberately let her not see anything about the project until it was yes. done. And she just started crying. And on the reveal, with the whole reveal episode, all that stuff with her and let her talk about expectations before she got it and then videotaped her during it. Myself and everybody else that works for me all get the same gratification from the reaction from that client than anything else. And on the flip side, the negative side, we get the same concern when a client doesn't react that way. Yeah. You know, when they come in and they're upset about something, we all we all feel it emotionally. We all feel it in our heart that we've done something wrong and we need to make this up. We need to figure out how to make this work, even if it's not always our fault. You know, in our game, there's so many things we don't control, like quality of parts and quality of suppliers. Speed of those things is a big thing we don't control, especially right now with the economy being oh, so God. bad. I've got parts that used to me eight days, not seeing eight months. Yep. But at the end of the day, it's our face in front of the client. So we have to answer for that, even if it's not our fault. So you get both sides of the reaction from us about feeling good about when we when you feel good about it. And when you don't feel good, we feel bad with you. And we're trying to help you get through this. Yeah. And sometimes that's hard to get customers to understand that we actually do want to do what's best for you. And our clients are not short term. You know, we don't have clients that we see one day and they're gone. Right. Most of my clients are two years long. So by the time two years is up, we've developed some kind of relationship. We know them. We know their family. We know their kids. They brought them over. Those kind of things. So it's a different game. No, it makes sense because you have to be passionate about what you're doing because the work sucks. Like, let's be honest. Actually, you enjoy it. So it's easy. Yeah, it's different for us, man. We we go into work every day with a smile on our face. Like, thank God we do this. It's it's not that you may think the work sucks, but like just honestly talking about being in this heat or the Texas cold and turning wrenches, it's hard work. Like, this isn't something that you... It's not like they glamorize on Pimp My Ride and everything else where it's like, oh, yeah, you just three days, man. We turned around a whole new car to you. Like it's long work. It's hard work. You're there early. You leave late. You're in crappy conditions sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's not work that everyone just as a kid says, you know what? That's the coolest thing ever. I want to do that. You know, uh, right, and and the ones that will, do, and the ones that do do that exactly want to work in a place like that. That's the thing, and and you have to have that heart for it. So you I do. can see that because I understand getting attached to vehicles. I mean, I love my Jeep, man. That's that's right. my Jeep. I never want to sell it. I did have that car that got away at a '97 short wheel base GMC Sierra. It was a V6, which sucked, but 
ultimately I didn't care. It right. was the exact truck that I've always wanted and wanted to get back. We bought it for three thousand dollars in two thousand six. Right. My mom bought it. It was my first vehicle that she bought me. And I freaking love that truck. But I was an idiot. I was 18 years mm-hmm. old, went and got a job at the sheriff's office. And I was like, I'm going to go buy me that Mustang I want. You know, yeah. so I traded it in, bought a lemon of a Mustang from this tote your note lot out in the Waller area. Turned out to be the biggest nightmare ever. I wound right. up letting it go back because I was like, this thing is just a piece of crap. You right. Know? And I miss that truck so much. And you now with find my Jeep, it. I know. With my Jeep, I'm like, I'm never letting it go. Right. Like, I'll have that thing. I was telling my wife, I was like, as soon as I get something new, then I want that to become my project Jeep. Because it's the last one of the JK. I think the 2017 was the last JK. Yeah. I like the JLs. 2018 through mid-2018 mid was last JK. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm like, I love that JK look. It still has kind of that square body look like the right, uh, right. the old ones, the TJs and YJs and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But it's newer, you know. Right. So I never want to let it go. I want it to be my project Jeep, something that my son will drive. Like, that's what I want to do with that thing. So I get being attached to it because – that's mine, man. That's Don Juan. You know what's Juan. funny? Ask me the same question. What your car is or what your- uh... There's not one. Yeah. And what's crazy is that I get asked that a lot. Yeah. Like everybody that walks in the shop wants to know what my favorite, you know, what's that one car? I've never had one car because I don't think I've ever done this from that perspective. I've never done cars because I thought that car was cool. Yeah. I've done cars because, like I said at the very beginning, it intrigues me that that car is connected to somebody for some reason. Yep. Example. I did a station wagon a few years ago for a guy. That car was his granddad's car. Mm-hmm. His granddad had sold the car. His wife had secretly found the car 20 years later. I love those stories. And Oklahoma bought it back, brought it to me as a surprise birthday gift for him. Okay. This is how that's the short version. But that car was where his mother was conceived. Yeah. And go. he found out about that after he got the car back. His granddad said, oh, you hear a funny story? Yes. I bought that car two weeks after I bought it. That's how your mom was conceived. Go, grandpa. That story alone means that guy will never get rid of that car. Right. If I'm not mistaken, it was a 65 Country Squire maybe. But it's so vague to me about what it was that because it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. It was the story behind it. And every time that we build a car, whether it be for a family heirloom or somebody just wanted one, we're preserving that story. Something happened in that car with somebody that was important. And if you look at the one thing that every single human being in this world right now is connected by, it's their cars. You're going to hear This is a funny analogy. Okay. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> I believe that traffic jams are like ballet. I have no problem with rush hour traffic. It's the perfect example of how if everybody just shut up and work together, we can get things done. And everybody talks about, you know, the wreck here, the wreck there. But if you think about how many cars just in Houston alone yep. at rush hour are trying to get from A to B, and we all collectively manage to get there without killing each other, nobody gets shot, nobody started a bad social media post about somebody else, or it, there was no talking. We all were focused on getting there together, merging together in the traffic, getting to the next lane, not running each other over. And we did it all without talking to each other, which tells you that we can do it if we all just stop worrying about stupid crap and work yep. together, you know? I tell that perspective to a lot of people in there. They think I'm crazy, but it's the truth. I've never seen rush hour traffic as a crazy thing. It's like a ballet that everybody just seemed to participate in and we all managed to get there. And that in itself, because we're all connected to our cars, whether it be the car you have to have because it's the only car you've got, or it's the car that you kept because it was your grandfather's, that car is a big part of your life and how you take care of that car or how that car is preserved for your grandkids or your kids or just put away in storage is a big deal to me. Yep. So I don't have a favorite. I think that, the idea of the car is cool. The idea of how we do it is cool, you know? 
Yeah, I guess if I had to choose a favorite, I've always been a Mustang fan as a kid. But at the same time... Boy, I've got a Fox Body GT, so I understand. Uh, I love them. But at the same time, I've also always dreamt of Dodge Viper. Like, that's been... Yeah. I've always told myself, like, one day I'm going to hustle so freaking hard that I'm going to be able to buy a Viper with no problem. Yeah. And just get it. And I'm not going to lie. It's just because I want to go fast. That's all it is. And I want that deep rumble, uh, that loud sound sure, from it. Sure. And they're sexy cars, man. Yeah. But I'm an equal opportunity car lover, you know? So, like you. But how old are you now? You're in 30s? I'm only 34. I'm in the G-Body family. I grew up with the G-Bodies. If I was going to have to pick a car that I would always want to have one of, which I've owned 11 so far, is a Grand National. Yeah. That was the, the greatest sleeper of all time. In the 80s yeah. when the muscle cars were crap and they couldn't figure out nothing and everything was plastic, the V6 Turbo was whooping everybody. Yeah. And that car is everything a car wants to be. It's sexy. It's efficient. It's comfortable to ride in. It wasn't hard to work on. And it's withstand the test of time, man. They, they, yep. They're still bringing- I was going to say, yeah. Still popular. grand for a G, a G and X, yeah. So. Yeah. It's crazy how cars roll, man. And they weren't that well built, just so you know. They're not horrible. But they were the 80s technology, engineering kind of stuff. So there was a lot of stuff that could have been done better, you know, that could have been made better. But limitations and technology and knowledge stopped that. But it was just that car of the 80s, man, that nobody will ever forget. You know? Yeah. No, you're not wrong. So your garage then, I think we've kind of hit on the subject a little bit. But, you know, who's that target client? How do I know if I need you versus one of the other shops in the area? So, okay. So that's kind of a two-part answer. And I'll tell you why. Used to, when we first started, out of matter of necessity. We would take on a lot of service jobs. You know, we would do basic one-day jobs, come in and change the oil or change the spark plug or fix this or fix that. And as time has evolved and our clientele has evolved, we've had to get, a, unfortunately, get away from a lot of service stuff because we don't have time. We just, I can't take care of everybody. Right now right. in my building currently, I have 61 cars in my shop right now that are all in process somewhere. And I have to pick and choose the best path for the future of my company. So we've gotten away from doing service stuff. So most of my clients now are people that are collecting a car and I say collecting loosely because some people consider collecting, you know, having multiple cars. Other people consider collecting having the one car the grandpa had that they'll never get rid of. That's their one car collection, which is fine. But they're more of the, we want to make it better than it was before. And we're willing to spend the money to do it because what I do is not a cheap service. This is not a Walmart of car repair. It's not, it's just not. This is a high end, high ticket, high cost, high quality kind of business. And, you know, they say that you want quality or speed or price you can only have two that's it well speed is not in our game because you cannot produce the kind of quality we have to produce with speed quick fact in 2019 i believe there was somewhere around 294 new business applications in in harris county for auto restoration shops 294 if i got my facts right pretty close i know i'm pretty close the next year 285 of them were gone which tells you one of two things tells you a couple of things one most people think they can do this and they can't because this is more than just being a repair mechanic it's a business yep and two you can't produce the kind of quality people need unless you have the facility the people and the equipment and the clientele it takes all of it and i have clientele because i've been doing this for a long long time even before i started rehab garage i've been doing this for since i was 14 yeah so i know people forever i've been i've been going to auctions since i was a kid i've been inadvertently putting myself in this business forever training i know people right and that's what you pay for yeah my education didn't come from a college degree my education came from exposure right i have cars that are sent to me from sweden and germany and other places that are sent a container with a check in the glove box that says finish my car and send it back to me because (laughs) they know me from somebody else they know but that's cool it's a good position to be in don't be wrong i'm not complaining at all but this is not a business you can just jump into tomorrow you can't just start tomorrow and send it to a restoration shop yeah and the ones that have tried to do that or they're trying to do that now they're very very adamant about making these videos on facebook and talk about oh it's so-and-so's client look at this beautiful job we did and they only show a little bit of the project and they try to sell you on the idea of what's on that video 
and be very weary because this is why I got in this business. I watched a video that and said, this isn't real. I watched a TV show and said, this is not real. Don't be fooled by social media videos. Go look at the place. Go walk the place. Go talk to people. Go see the work for yourself. Because what you see on video is not even close to what reality is. Yeah, they're going to show you the best of the best. Yeah, one of my one of my good friends, Jeff, owns a shop called Flat 12 Gallery. He used to be in Dallas. Now it's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Everybody probably knows him. He used to have a show called Chasing Cars. He does a lot of movie cars. He buys and sells a lot of movie set cars. It would shock you, shock you how bad cars they really are. They look great on camera. But when you see them in person, yeah, they're junk. They're absolute junk. And the only reason why they're important is because they were in a movie. He owns like I think eight or nine of the Fast and Furious cars and all the series cars. And every one of them are, would blow your mind how crappy they are. I'm sure they were tore up. No, no. Just how they're built. Oh, yeah. They just throw them together enough to make them look good on camera. Right. But the car itself is junk. It was a big lesson to me when I first learned about this, when I started seeing them because you think, oh my God, I want a car just like that. Everybody goes, I want that Charger in Fast and Furious. And then when you see that Charger, you're like, oh yeah, I don't want the car. Yeah. No, I'm good. Well, I want something real. So it's very easy to be, to be deceived in my business from social media and from video and from movies. You want to have a car done. You want to be my kind of client. You come see the place. Just like you said before, you've been to my place. It's clean. We stay organized for a reason because we have to create quality. And in order to create quality, you have to be organized. So. Don't break my heart now. Tell me Eleanor's a beautiful ride in real life. I have one in my shop right now. <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't been there, have you? Uh, no, not recently. Last time I went was when y'all were doing the clearance on Jeep parts, and I just stopped in to- Yeah, there's an Eleanor right there, right well, now. Right in my shop. It's actually finishing up. We put new power door locks in it. It's I'm going to have to come see it. It's beautiful. Yeah. That, that car's nasty is... too, man. When it fires up, it, the whole building rumbles. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Obviously, then most of the work that you're doing would include, like you said, just restoration work, rehabilitation, yeah. just making that car look like it did. Back in the day or to your vision, whatever vision you well, have. Well, no, no, okay. So let me let me clarify something. My sure. shop is not about what I want. We work very differently in the aspect of a lot of restoration shops, you come in, you tell them, hey, I'd like my car restored. They say, okay, give us a check and we'll call you when it's done. They build the car kind of the way they want to, right? Yep. And there's a set price and that set price is really, really high. And if you want anything else done, it's a change or kind of situation. We're different. What we do is we give you an a la carte scenario. So you bring me your car. You tell me how, what you would like to have in your car. And there's two things we do. One, we educate you about your car. And two, we give you the best options for you to get from A to B how you want to get there. And you pay as you pick. So if you bring me a car, let's just make it simple, right? The car comes in, first needs to be disassembled and the bad damage repaired, rust repair, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to give you the options to get from A to B on that phase only. And you're going to pay a deposit and we're going to work through billable hour to get you from A to B. Once you get A to B and you get B and now you're ready for the next phase, now we reevaluate where you're at. And this is how much credit you have left. And this is what we recommend you do next. And then you pick your path. And then we do that phase. And we bill you as we go. It's perfect. The interesting thing about what we do is that 100% of the decisions are made by you. My job is to educate you about what your options are yeah. that can be done. Don't and do not, that. And it's not stupid, bad options, but, right? Yeah. But you may have more than one way to get to A to B. But here's a cheaper version or here's a more expensive or here's one brand, here's another or whatever, right? My job is to educate you. So when you get done with your car, you made all of the decisions and it's the car that you wanted. Now, if you ask me to do something stupid, I won't do it. We won't do bad quality. We won't put body filler in rust holes, things like that. But it's still your call. And you chose your path on your budget. So when you bring a deposit in and we bill you, we give you a ballpark idea of, hey, we think it's going to take us about this many hours to get this phase done. And you pick it. Then whenever you have credit left, if you decide that halfway through your car, you want to stop and wait till next year to start back up. We write you a check for what's left in your credit, give you your car and shake hands and everybody's happy. Yeah. And you've picked your own path. I never wanted to be in a situation with a customer where they feel like I made their decisions for them 
and made the decisions to spend their money for them. We wanted to do it differently. Yeah. And in this business, you have to let people make the choice. One, because it's an emotional purchase. This is not a uh, reasonably financial good decision. Yeah. Okay. I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> yep. Classic car restoration is only good financial if you're to buy a car that will be worth five times more in five years or more. And that's the kind of guy that builds it and puts it away and to drive it. Right. Most people want to drive these cars. You didn't make this decision as a customer. It's, it's a luxury. Fun, yeah, it's a luxury, right? You, you did this because you wanted to, not because yep. you needed to. So when you have people that do stuff because they want to, they want to be a part of the decision. They want to be a part of the whole thing. They want to feel like they had a part in it. Even if they couldn't put their hands in the car, they made the decisions. And I wanted to fulfill that for people. Some people that's hard to grasp around because they go to all the other shops around us or around anywhere. And that's not the concept. And they look at us sometimes as, well, y'all must be up to something. Yeah. But we're not. But then they go talk to clients and not read a review on Google from somebody who's never worked for this at all, which I think is funny. But um, <laughs> Love that. They go talk to one of our clients we built a car for and they're like, okay, now, now I get it. Now I get it. This guy told me it took three years to build his car, but it's exactly what he asked for. And he picked the color. He picked the seat. He picked the thread. He picked the, you know, this, that, and the other thing. He can't say at any given moment that that wasn't his call. And I want you to be that way. When you get your car back, I want you to go, this is what I really want. This yeah. is what I asked for. This is, they gave me exactly what I want. So y'all can handle every single stage, upholstery, engine work, we do body work. The only thing it. we don't do in my building is machining, like block machining. And okay. we don't do internal transmission repair because it's such a highly tool required business that I don't have room. God, I can't imagine. Yeah. I just don't have room. And we do our own fabrication. We have our own technology equipment from plasma cutting tables to... We're working on getting a five axis CNC machine for other purposes now, which we've never had to have before, but we're getting to a point now where we need it. But yeah, we do everything in house. I don't like putting my name on somebody else's work. If I outsource something for this reason or another, it's usually a supplier. And even then, I'm very, very picky about who I get stuff from because there's a lot of suppliers out there that produce products that just aren't that great. Yeah. And we end up having to deal with them. And the problem with stuff like that is that most of them will, will warranty the part, but they don't pay for the labor to pull it back off. That's just left on the customer's shoulders that, you know, if I put a supercharger on your car and the supercharger goes bad, they'll warranty the price of the supercharger and give you a new one, but they ain't going to pay to pull it off and put it back on. Yeah. Now you're stuck with that bill again. So why even deal with that company that you know has a history of bad parts? Absolutely. So it's a hard thing to do. That's the hardest thing about what we do is supplies, parts and supplies. Yeah. I can imagine this in this economy right now and with the way yeah. supply chain is. And there's already a fight because a lot of cars we do, nobody makes parts for anymore. We're looking for NOS stuff that somebody happens to have on a shelf somewhere. And we happen to find it. We have so many contacts all the world because we have to or we can't find some stuff. I can't imagine, yeah, yeah. sourcing some of those parts. Oh, man. I had to, to drive across the country so I'm just go find one. I drove literally across the country to find one emblem off a car one time in a junkyard. The guy happened to have that car and I found an emblem in a picture and I drove there and took it off myself because it was the awesome. only one I could find. Yeah. I'm your target customer. I've identified that. I've got the money to spend. I want to spend it all and make this car look good. Just kind of walk me through the process of becoming a customer. You know, what do I need to do? So the first thing you would do is you would come and you would have an appointment. We do everything by appointments because, as you can well believe, there's a lot of people just walk, walk through our shop. Yeah. So you come at a point, we sit down and we have a build meeting with you. We talk about what do you want, what do you have. If you already have a car, it's a little bit different than if you don't. I have both kinds of clients. So let's just say you have a car. So you've got your dad's Mustang. Let's start with a Mustang, okay? You come in and we're going to sit down. We're going to walk around your car. You're going to bring it with you. We're going to sit down and make notes. Here's the things that you have to have. I'm going to tell you the things that you have to do whether you like it or not. And then I'm going to tell you the things that you can do. And I'm going to send you home and say, do some homework. I want you to get on Google and I want you to pull up some pictures of ones that look like what you want your car to look like or have the things you would like to have in your car mm -hmm. and bring me back your homework because I need to know what's in your head, right? Yep. Once we have that second meeting where you bring all that homework back, then we're going to sit down and say, okay, well, here's the path. Here's a ballpark idea of what we think it might take to get there. 
But because I don't know your car and your car is different than the other guy's Mustang, your car has a different life history, has different damages, different problems, different here and there wear and tear. We're going to start you out on deposit. You're going to pay your first working deposit. And we're going to start working through the things we have to do first, which is get it apart, find all the damage that you can't see, and evaluate what's left. Once you get to that, then we're going to start the next phase of starting fixing the most important things first that have to be done, the fabrication, whatever needs to be done in your car. But you have to start there. You have to have the realistic expectation that we don't know what's wrong with your car until we get it apart. You don't know. You can yep. make it assumptions all you want to. But get through the have-tos first. Get it to where it's a car that you can now put the cool stuff on you want. Because I can't put new parts on a broken car. Absolutely. That's how it starts. That's awesome. And it's a cool path because if you get people in the right frame of mind from the beginning, it's never a struggle. And it's kind of like building a house. If you ever built a house for yourself, some people have. They understand that when you first start building a house, it's super exciting. Then when they pour the slab and you're waiting for the frame guy to show up, it gets really, really irritating because you're like, where's well, everybody, you know? And then when they frame it, it looks huge. And then when they sheet rock it, it looks small. You know, and it just goes to this whole emotional roller coaster. A car is no different. You go through this emotional roller coaster, the whole process of it looks like it's really, really bad. And then, oh, oh wow, now it looks great. Let's paint it. And then when you paint it, like, oh, now it looks unfinished. And yeah, people go through the emotional roller coaster for sure, man. I'm sure. It's pretty wild to watch them. And you have to hold their hand. But that's what we do. That's our job is to educate you and keep you on task. And like I said, if at any point you decide you want to stop, you have every right. We have no problem with that. Some people, I have one guy that's been bringing me his car once a year for seven years. And we've done a little bit at a time because that's what he can afford to do. We're Absolutely. Okay We're okay with that. We don't care. Yeah. As long I'm, as you understand that you fit and schedule wherever you go because I'm I'm a busy shop. You bring me a car now. If you brought me a car tomorrow, I can't even touch your car for eight months right now. Golly. And that's just get to phase one. So, which is not bad because, like I said, if you want quality, you don't get speed. It doesn't work that way. No, that's a fair point. You can't expect somebody to be cheap, fast, and good. No. Yeah. You cannot do it. And usually only two of those work together. Right. Yeah. Anytime speed's involved, you ain't getting quality. Exactly. You'll get cheap and fast. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. Yeah. I don't want to. I mean, everybody says that too. Like, I don't want cheap. I don't want fast. I want quality. And then when it comes down to it, they're like, well, why are you charging so much? Right. They want cheap and quality. I- I'm sorry. Did you come to me or did I come to you? Yeah. And, and, you know, look, and, and you're funny. That's a that's kind of a loaded comment because I get a lot of people that say that, right? Well, yeah. How come you're so expensive? Well, the truth is our shop rate is not the highest around. We're actually probably somewhere in the middle of what we do. And I've always tried to keep it there from an economic standpoint. I didn't want to be the most expensive guy on the street. Yeah. I've never felt like, kind of like you were talking about earlier about our shop being clean and made me think it's dirty. I've never felt like that, in my personal opinion, that we are at the level yet where I can say I can charge the most of anybody. And I don't think I ever will be because I'm always, you know, my worst critic. But if you look at us compared to other people, our quality is arms and legs higher than most people. Yeah. And we're the same price or cheaper. But we do it different. You know, we don't go out there and just shove it in your face and build your car and then send you an $80,000 bill and say, pay me or I'm keeping your car. That will never happen in my shop. And it happens to a lot of people. Like, I have Mechanics a of, lean is a real thing. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of people that bring me their cars that were screwed up in their shop and they went through two years of legal battle just to get the car back. And then by the time they get to me, the car is half done. What they said was half done. Yeah. And now I have to spend the customer's money to fix the things that were done wrong before I can actually finish the car the way he wanted. And most of them have been in that situation where the guy said he wanted 20 grand or he wouldn't give my car. And I had to dispute the bill. I'd never want to be in that position with nobody. I don't want anybody to come to my shop and go, oh, well, I want my car, but I can't pay you. Well, you've already paid me. That's why you pay deposit up front. Absolutely. That's why I write you a check for what's left in credit. You, you know, you've got $3,000 left in credit. Where you want to stop? Here you go. Here's a check. Here's your car. Absolutely. So it's not complicated. Just know what you're walking into and know, be prepared. If you want to build a car, know it's a long process and it's going to cost money. And you should financially plan for it. And if you're smart, the way we do it gives you the ability to plan for it. 
gives you the ability to budget yourself out to build a car. Yep. Because most people think, oh, I, I'm not going to build a car because you know I have to drop a hundred grand right now. No, you don't. If you budget it right and plan it right, it's just like building a house or building a rental property or anything else. You can do it in pieces. Well, you know, phase one's price, and you know you got eight months to get there. Right. So if phase one's twenty grand divided by eight, and then there's your monthly installments yeah. you need to put back to be able to pay Correct. you to start. And you know that if you come talk to us now before your car starts in eight months, we're going to tell you, you know, we think you're going to be around this much money to complete the car. It's kind of a ballpark. So you can start planning. That's the point. Yeah. So you can plan to spend a hundred grand. And if I don't tell you that now and tell you, look, it's going to be two, three years. You've got three years to plan to spend a hundred grand on a car. It doesn't sound nearly as daunting as dropping a hundred grand today. Sure. And that's way more manageable and you can accomplish what you want to accomplish. So it's a whole different way of doing things. Yep. So, do y'all have kind of like a portfolio of sorts on your website, social media, anywhere I can go to see some of the work that y'all do? Yeah, are y'all able to share a lot of it? Most of our pictures are on Facebook. We're actually working on kind of redeveloping the gallery on our website. Our website doesn't get really used as much as our Facebook does. We have a lot of followers on Facebook, like 80,000 or something. I don't even know what it is now. It's killer. Yeah, we're not like Kim Kardashian or anything. But, <laughs> but for what we do for a shop we have, and most of our fans are super loyal. We don't lose people, you know, because they're, they love what we do. I have people that have been tracking a single car for three years. And that's all they've been watching is that one car because they that's love cool. that car. You know, they remind the car they had in high school. So if you want to see our work, most of our pictures and stuff we try to post on Facebook. We're actually working on building a whole new gallery for our website. But I want to find a way to kind of integrate that gallery more where people can access it easier and just go on the website. I'm not trying to do it yet. That's kind of you guys' job. Right? <laughs> Andrew, um, get on that. Yeah, that's Andrew's job. <laughs> but I keep all of our pictures of our projects, every project I've ever touched on external hard drives. And I think I've probably got maybe 30,000 pictures, wow. maybe maybe more. So there's a very small amount of those actual cars on our social media. So we kind of put the most important ones, the ones we think that people would spend the most time interested in. But yeah, that's pretty much where you see most of it. So social media just at Rehab Garage? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. We do have an Instagram, I think, but I don't think we use it much because most of our stuff's on Facebook. And really in all reality, most of our business is word of mouth. We don't really advertise much. We don't run ads. I don't have billboards. I've never had to. I'm afraid if I ever did, I'd have to build five more buildings. So, And that's a good thing. I yeah, mean, yeah. I, same thing. I have a really good friend of mine that his wife runs a hair salon. He does like the HR and business side of it and stuff. And I'm like, dude, when am I going to take over y'all's website? When am I going to start doing this stuff? And he's like, bro, I can't handle any more work right, right now. We're so packed that we're expanding and I can't even think about it until we expand it. Even when they do, probably be so busy that it's like, I don't need to advertise yeah. or have anything Good, because everybody's coming here anyway. One of the top five rules of small businesses, growing too fast is just as deadly as not growing fast enough. hundred percent. And if you get too big for your britches, then all of a sudden you have problems you can't solve. Many companies have scaled too fast and then shut down because of it. That's right. We are seven, eight years old because we've been very good at doing that in a reasonable, controllable manner. So. so beyond bringing you money in a car to work on, how can we support you? What means the most for you from your followers? The biggest thing for us is... is if you like something, make a comment. If you like something, like a picture, you know, like a, a post. Because we do, we are kind of victims like a lot of other small businesses of what they call trollers on social media. Mm -hmm. We have some Google reviews that weren't even about us at all that somehow got tied to our phone number. We can't figure out how to get off there that Google's not a whole lot of help with. And we have some people that have made negative comments on Facebook reviews and stuff that unfortunately you can't see both sides of the story. So they don't really know what really happened. You can't do much about it. So the biggest thing for us is if you like something, comment. Let us know that you like it. Let us know that we like seeing this because a lot of stuff in our future has to do with building our own cars. We have to, at some point, because of where car and the car industry is going, we have to start gearing more towards building some of our own cars. So if you do like something, you'd like to see us build something a certain way, don't be afraid to say it. Say, hey, you know, we really like, we would really like to see a 
Grand National build, you know, something like that, which I'll never be mad at anybody saying to me. <laughs> <laughs> hint, hint. Yeah, hint, hint, yeah, take that at word. <laughs> but come by and see us. If you, want to, if you want to come see the shop, make an appointment, just call the office. If we don't answer, which we try to all the time, we're busy, just call, get out. Leave a voicemail, what's an appointment, come by and take a tour. You can kind of see what we do, and if anything, you get to see all kinds of cars. I have cars from all different eras in my shop right now. It's crazy. And my lay right now, we're running and driving around the parking lot. You I know? think when I came to visit, y'all were trailering a Rolls Royce. Classic uh, Rolls Royce. Which one? I don't know. The blue I and silver say, one? I want to say the price tag was somewhere seven seventy five plus, maybe close to a mil or right at a you mil. You know what color it was? For some reason, dark green is sticking out in my head, but it may not be right. You're talking about the silver cloud. So I actually have a Rolls Royce right now. I don't, you know Jay Leno, obviously. Oh yeah. Jay Leno has a '65 Silver Cloud Phantom II four door limousine style Rolls Royce oh, that man. he had. An, he had derelict hot rods put an LS six in, it. and it's about <laughs> six hundred horses, right? Yeah. So my client accidentally one night while at the pool drinking with his buddies, showing off that he could bid for cars on his phone. Accidentally bought two cars on Barrett Jackson auction, and oh one of them was God. a '65 Silver Cloud. So he calls me on Monday and he says, "So I've made a mistake." I said, "What happened?" He said, "Well, I bought some cars on accident. They're on their way from California to your shop, and I want you to do something for me." I said, "Okay, well, lay it on me." And this guy's cool as you can be, right? He said, "So I have the exact same car Jay Leno has, but mine's blue, and I want to be faster than Jay Leno. So I want you to make the car faster." So. We took his Rolls Royce and have now installed a 750 horsepower Coyote. God, yes. But the tricky part is, is that most people don't know about Rolls Royce back in the 60s and 70s, and even the early 50s, late 50s, was that the frame was not solid steel. The frame was sheet metal wrapped in fish oil wrapped in sheet metal. So they weren't made to hold a lot of horsepower. So in order to accomplish this mission, we had to completely scrap the frame and build a custom frame for this car to fit God. a Rolls Royce silver body, which is extremely complicated. To hold a 750 horsepower Coyote, to keep the right side drive steering, it still has right side drive steering. That's to killer. integrate the original, we reintegrated the original gauges to work with the, with the new Coyote motor, so it's analog gauges working with an electronic system. Huh. So the whole interior of the car looks exactly the same. The outside of the car looks exactly the same. We even had a custom set of wheels cut to look like the original Rolls Royce wheels, but they were custom fit because they're wider and we tubbed the car on the underneath so you can get more meat under it. And this thing has uh, electronic exhaust gates. It sounds like a dragster at the stoplight. It's hilarious, <laughs> dude. It is so cool. It's separated right now. The frame and the engine, the chassis is all sitting in one bay, and then the body's actually in paint right now, getting ready to be painted. But it's going to be the nastiest sleeper silver cloud Rolls Royce you've ever seen. Yeah. Jay Leno, you've been called out. Oh, uh, yeah. I know he's a big listener of the show. <laughs> so he's uh, so he's going gonna to get a direct message from my client who's already said that when we're done, he wants Jay Leno to come out and race him somewhere at an airport or somewhere and see yes. who's faster. But this thing is is nasty. Yeah. But the work we had to do to make it all work was crazy. What you don't see is, like I said, we built a custom steering system for it to make sure that the Cowdy fit and still be able to right side drive that car. Yeah, it's cool. You can tell your buddy, though, that, I mean, he can just say that was the excuse he made up so his wife wouldn't be mad. No, I can't. Because his (laughs) wife listens to (laughs) Babe, it was an accident. It's funny because as soon as she found out what he did, the only thing she did was shake her head and go, oh boy, (laughs) and walked out. She's used to this then. Yeah, but she- she, Oh, yeah. They're super good people. Most of my clients, all of my clients, I don't really have a problem with any of my clients. I have few and far between over eight years that just weren't happy about something. You can't make everybody happy. But most of my clients are super good people. 
They don't look for recognition. They're not looking to get some exposure or be a celebrity or anything. They just really like their car. Absolutely. And that's what they're there for. They love their car as much as we do for a different reason. Yeah. And you'll probably never know most of my clients, but they're just cool people and they have their own story and it's, it's all the same thing, you know. It's a fun business to be in. It is. It is. It's fun from the aspect of you to meet so many different people. I now have a lifelong friend from a guy in Sweden, matter of fact, that I sold a 1936 Chevy to a coupe, probably the nicest, most original 36 I've ever seen in my life. I sourced it from a guy where I knew it had it for years and I've been chasing that car for years. He finally decided he had to sell it in a little garage in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, forever. Nobody knew it was there. I got it and the guy from Sweden wanted it. I connected the two together. And that guy will be my friend forever now. He sends me a text every week asking me how I'm doing and how the family's doing and what's in the shop today and, you know, what's cool going on. And I've never met the guy in person ever. But, that's cool. You know, he's, yeah, that's the kind of people I deal with. And they're, Heck yeah. They're good people. Yeah, I can't complain about my job at all. Awesome, man. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing. I think we could probably just sit here and talk all day about oh, this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, think, I would I say- People are just watching. I'm like, yeah, I'm running out of time. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no passion in you about this an industry. You know, like I can just tell. This is no. this is such a boring conversation. You're right. No, no I could I know I I'm about to fall asleep, it. man. Leave me alone. Right? I could talk about it all day. It's, it's super exciting. But unless you have something else, man, that you just need to get out there and share. The one thing that I think that if I was going to make sure that got out to people, it wouldn't be so much about what I do. It's how I do it. This whole podcast is about small businesses, right? Yep. And I think that there's two very important things that people need to always know that a lot of people don't get told, and that's you're only successful by surrounding yourself with people that will help you, and you can't do it on your own. You'll never get there on your own. Don't be afraid to take help and ask for help and get help. Absolutely. Just make sure down the road you pass it back somehow, and don't ever quit. No matter what it takes, don't ever quit, because you said in your intro, it talks about most businesses don't make it past five years. Yep. I can tell you right now that I've had to pull off some major, major things just simply by not quitting to keep my company open sometimes. There's been twice where I thought I was 24 hours from having to close because we weren't in a cash flow strong standpoint yet. We weren't in the optimal situation to survive yet. It took absolute fortitude on my part to get there. And it's okay. That's what it takes. Because at the end of the day, when you get to where you don't have to do anymore, it's a lot easier and it's a lot nicer and you can enjoy what you do. But walk through the mud to get to dry land. That's how it works. Yeah. Don't quit. My big takeaway is I hope every listener that listens to this understands how important they are. Sure. Because I've had people here on this show that are brand new businesses just starting out. I'm mm-hmm. talking like not even accepted money yet. I've had businesses like yours that are quite a ways through their journey that are quite successful, doing great. I've had multi-million dollar CEOs and inventors on that have right. multiple companies that are doing millions and millions of dollars a year with their huge finance groups. I've had just people on that have podcasts, you know, and they're just trying to reach people. I mean, I've had a huge variety. variety. Right, yeah, right, right. That's the word is variety. But what's important is that every single one of those people need one thing and that's support. Right. And what's great is even sometimes those large corporations, you know, one day when your garage is huge and you've got several locations and you're nationwide mm-hmm. and, and you're big, it still started as a mom and pop shop. Right. And there's still a story. And that's the important part about us telling stories on this podcast is I want people to support the people that are on this show. Right. You know, not just the company, but I want to support the person because yeah. I don't want to go to a restaurant that's, you know, McDonald's, Olive Garden, something like that. Nothing against them. I want to go to that restaurant that this is Brittany's restaurant or Curtis's restaurant, right. or this is my friend or someone that I know and I'm supporting them in right. their dream. A lot of our suppliers or vendors that we use are people just like that, that we tend to want to lean away from corporate driven businesses from a vendor standpoint, because there are a lot of mom and pop shops that 
actually have a better quality product, just don't have the financial backing or the technology ability yet to survive in that market. So I'm with you. But a lot of that support isn't necessarily using them. It's just recognizing them and saying, you're doing a good job. Absolutely. The one thing about being a small business owner that I've always found is that you never really hear that. Nobody ever says, hey, man, you're doing a good job. Yeah. You have to do it to yourself. If you can't do it for yourself, nobody else will. You got to self-motivate. You got to pat yourself on the back and say, hey, I'm okay. I'm going to make this. Yep. That's a very, very hard thing for people to do. And you've got to learn how to do that. It's a very important skill that if you can self-motivate and you can self-maintain, and you can stay the course. You'll get there. Yeah, being believe. an entrepreneur, you go through that same roller coaster of emotions like you do everyday personal life. Except 100 times greater. Yeah. That's right. It's always because a bigger deal. That's especially right. when you have employees. Yeah. And it's like, uh-huh. okay, if I don't make sales this month, I don't eat. Right. But all of these mouths that depend on me don't eat as well. That's right. You know, and that's something that being a business owner, man, it's hard to live with I know. I have, I have 23 families I'm responsible for. Right. On an everyday basis. Absolutely. And if I make a bad decision today, it affects all 23 families. Yep. Out of 23 families, I think there's 18 kids and there's seven grandkids. That's how many people I'm responsible Jesus. for. Yeah. And th- but you know, it's funny because everybody's like, oh, well, you know, I'm not like GE or Amazon. You're not. It's not about that. Everything's relative to what you do. Yep. A rehab Garage will never be a $100 million a year business. It's not even possible. In my market, it's not possible to be a $100 million a year business. But it doesn't matter because I'm not trying to compete against somebody like Amazon. All I'm trying to do is be the best at what I do. And down the road, if I ever get there, which in my mind, I probably never will, then if I do something different, it'll be the same concept for me. It's not about whether I'm as big as Amazon or not. It's about am I being the best I can be? Am I surviving? And are the families I'm responsible for, are they moving forward in their life? Are they getting better? Is their, is their financial situation getting better? Or are they buying a new house? Are they getting a new car? Are they getting the things they need in their life? Because without me, the situation is different for them. And not to say they couldn't work somebody else, but it's my job as their employer to say, to give them the best possible chance for success as well. If I give that to them, then they'll give the same thing back to me. And I think a lot of business owners miss that. Oh, I agree. They're the biggest asset I have. You know, it doesn't matter how much equipment I buy or how many cool tools I buy. If the guy's not there to run that tool, it doesn't matter. Yep. So I pay my people well. I give them as much support as I possibly can. I have my office manager who's been with me forever. If she has a kid that's sick today, bring her to the shop. Let's go. We'll yeah. set up a playpen for it. Let's do it. We all jump in and all the guys there are like, hey, I'll watch her for while you go to lunch. Yeah. That's what we do because if you don't do that, you won't survive. Not in the small business world, you won't. Yeah. You just won't. I've recorded, a family. I've recorded a podcast here with my kid in the next room. Hell yeah. Same thing. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And, I mean, and it is what it is. It's for him anyway. That's the point. Exactly. So don't get misconceived by people who haven't done it. There's two kinds of small business owners. There's the ones that have earned it and the ones that it's been given to. And you can always recognize the difference. You can see it very quickly. Yep. And typically the second one, the one that's been given to, don't survive. They eventually tear down what was built for them. That's why they say that in society, we build an empire, we pass it down to our kids, they run the empire, then they lose interest in it, their kids are like, screw it, they screw it up and you have to start all over. Yeah. That's exactly what happens. So you have to decide which one you are. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it with yeah. friends and family and yeah. it's like, dude, you were given everything. And the problem is it's not necessarily all 100% their fault because they didn't have to go through the life lessons and the learning curve of starting from scratch yep. and learn the things the hard way. Now, when anything happens, what to me is minute as a scenario is catastrophic to them. Right. You know, what they see is, oh my God, I'm going to lose my business tomorrow. I'm like, oh, that's no big deal. I don't know exactly how to solve that problem. Let's go on. I'm moving on, you know, yep. next day, let's go. I have a friend right now that's in that exact scenario. It was given to him and it's failing. I'm doing everything I can to support him and to help him not lose the business, right? To make the right decisions, to understand this is not as catastrophic as it seems. 
And it's a very, very hard thing to get him to stop looking at it that way. Right. Because he doesn't know any other way. And talking to somebody is different than experiencing it yourself. So if you started this thing from the very beginning on your own, whatever it may be, you, you know, if you're selling tires or building widgets, I don't know, you're in better position than you were if somebody gave it to you. 100% better. Because yeah. you're learning it the right way. You're having to deal with your own mistakes. You're having to be self-accountable. You're having to do these things and make it work. In the end, five, six, seven years from now or down the road, it will be worth it. And you will be stronger for it. And everybody else around you will respect you for it. And you'll have a good business and something you pass on to your kids. And then you have to train your kids on to screw that, so, yeah. <laughs> which is what I'm doing. So, Well, I think it's all good information. I mean, I think yeah. we definitely got something out there for the listeners to learn from and, and understand. And probably yeah. a lot of people out there agreeing with us. So as always, man, I can't thank you enough for being here and opening up, sharing your personal story, your business story, yeah, everything with us. And listeners, you know, I can't thank y'all enough for tuning in every single week to another episode of the Beef Podcast. As always, I've been your host, John Kelly, aka John the Marketer on Instagram. I hope that you'll take his advice, go out there, support these businesses that are coming on here. They're pouring everything out to us every single week, telling us all about them, all about their business and why they're worthy, why they deserve our support. So check them out and stay beefy, my friends. You've been listening to The Beef. Thanks for listening. Make sure to like, rate, and review. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information that you can use. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, follow us on social media. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Beefy Marketing. Would you like your business featured on The Beef? Know a business that should be featured? Visit beefymarketing.com slash the beef. Remember, branding is about a connection with you and your people. Till next time, thanks for listening to The Beef.